Howdy, y'all. Welcome to Urbane Cowboys Podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug, Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. So if you are hearing this and all it goes according to plan, it is the day before the election, Monday, November the 2nd. And we had originally thought about doing an election-themed episode, but decided that an, an episode that would be pointless after 24 hours would not be the best use of our time. So we wanted something that uh, would, would be relevant both before and after the election. And uh, the obvious choice was to talk about uh, some of the different developments and events going on in foreign policy and around the world. And so to discuss that with us, uh, we have my old friend, uh, Dave Reboy, who is the president of Strategic Improvisation, uh, which is a communications firm uh, and has a long, Dave uh, is a noted, uh, was it Twitter pugilist? Is that what you were referred to as, Dave? That's what they called me uh, in Politico, and I thought it was—I thought it was nice. You know, I, I think it was a term of derision, and I figured, you know what, it sounds like a term of endearment to me. Yes. So uh, Dave is definitely an interesting uh, Twitter follower, uh, very lively on Twitter. And if you ever see a photo of him, he looks like Drax from uh, Guardians of the Galaxy. So you know, uh, you—I don't you know who that is, but I—I I, I think it's good, right? Yes, yes, it's it, it's good. It's it's uh, you know you would hope that any pugilism uh, would would remain on the level of words. I'll just put it that way. <laughs> okay, good. You're, you're formidable. Okay, so welcome to the program. Um, and you know there's uh, there's a lot going on in the world. <laughs> there's a lot going on in the world. Um, I thought we would it would be a good place to begin. Uh, Some place that is not necessarily the most obvious, and that has to do with Eastern Europe. Because uh, uh, we've definitely seen, uh, I would say, a uh, a divergence in recent years between the path that a lot of Western European countries want to take, you know, your Germany's, uh, your France's, and so on, and some of the Eastern European governments in Poland and Hungary, et cetera. And this is obviously, there's a lot of, there's been a lot of talk about this. Some of it, uh, you know, more emotional based than other stuff. Uh, Joe Biden, and I think in the last debate, may have compared the governments of Hungary and Poland to Belarus, the autocracy there. What? Well, he, he said they were. He he said they were um, authoritarian. Right. Yeah. And so this is this is kind of uh, yeah. So this is a common theme, even though they they do have elections in Hungary and Poland. You know, uh, uh, they have a, a you know a opposition in the parliament, and there you know opposition newspapers and other things. So I right. guess what, what what's going on there? What what is authoritarian, if anything, about? Hungary and Poland, and why why are we talking about it that way? Sure. So first of all, thanks for for having me on. And uh, and I should begin, I guess, with full disclosure, which is that um, I um, I have a contract now with the uh, with the government of Hungary um, yes. to to yeah, help them. Right. Yeah, 
yeah, to help them communicate um, their 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 policies and uh, and really tell their story in the United States, specifically to conservative audiences, uh, because they think it's a it's a natural fit, and I know it's a natural fit. And and this uh, relationship began. I mean, I'm not a lobbyist uh, by by trade, a foreign lobbyist uh, of, of any kind, really, until now. Um, which is that I thought that. Um, I thought they had a good argument. I thought that they were being unfairly attacked for the last several years. You know, we can we can go into why because that's the question uh, you asked initially, which, which is which is kind of why do they have these enemies that they have? Um, and I just thought that um, that they needed better representation and to to better be able to communicate their story here. So so that's so that's um, you know kind of getting that out of the way. Um, I yeah, think what actually, you, uh, yeah. so sorry to interrupt, but yeah, yeah. It, it occurred to me that normally, uh, when I introduce the guests, I ask them to tell a little bit about their background and I did tell a little bit about yours, but, uh, I think it might be helpful to go into a little bit more detail because a, it's uh, relevant. Yeah. A lot of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so, um, so I was born in New Jersey. Uh, my parents are, uh, my parents met here and got married here. They um, they are um, Hungarian Jews from Transylvania, which is uh, kind of you know let's say uh, disputed part of uh, of of Romania for for the last uh, several decades. So when they were when they were born there, it was Romania, and uh, they came to the U.S. Um, with actually quite a, a sizable group of, uh, of, of other folks, you know, not coming as a group, but, but, you know, there's, there's actually, a, a, an interesting, um, not insubstantial community of, uh, Hungarian Jews coming from Romania in New Jersey. Um, you know, and, and these, these, you know, family friendships, uh, spanned, you know, several generations at this point, but, um, they were always Reagan Democrats. Uh, my, um, and and also Holocaust survivors. Uh, my my grandfather was uh, was in Auschwitz and and uh, and several other camps and and you know um, many of his family uh, died in the Holocaust. And uh, they came here. They came here seeking uh, political and religious freedom. They didn't go to Israel. They didn't go. You know they 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 wanted to come to the United States, and that was that was true for for both um, for both sides of the family. Um, so I grew up speaking Hungarian as my first language because the family thought, hey, we're in the United States. He'll learn English from society and culture and school and friends and, and media. And they were right. And, and they were right. Yeah, yeah. Who knew? Um, and uh, so, but but we always kept Hungarian as the the, the kind of private family language. And it's, it's always good also to have a, a language um, to yourself when you go out. You know, you can yell at your kids. Um, you know, you can talk about other people you see on the street and, you know, without, without fear of reprisals. Um, so, uh, so my, my two sisters and I, um, all learned to speak Hungarian as our, as our first language. And, and we still, we still speak it. Um, and, uh, and my sisters have, have, uh, have tried very hard to pass it down, which I think is a, is a, is a great thing. But, uh, so all that is, all that is to say, I guess after that, I, um, I got a, uh, a bachelor's from GW where I studied Eastern Europe and, uh, and Russian 
diplomatic history, uh, specifically kind of late Cold War. It was the late 90s, and um, and we we're just dealing with the kind of the, the big issues there were were privatization and sort of the unraveling of the uh, the, the the Eastern Bloc. Um, I spent some time in Hungary at that point. Um, but at that point, I was really mostly interested in jazz by then. And uh, I had kind of rushed off uh, to San Francisco and then to New York and then back to San Francisco again, uh, playing music in uh, in the jazz scene over there. I was always interested in, in politics. Um, I was in New York for 9-11, and I pretty much had this politics since I first subscribed to National Review in seventh grade and the American Spectator in eighth. So, um, so I've always been kind of this, this kind of person, um, with varied interests coming, uh, in and out, but, but the, the politics has, has kind of stayed pretty, um, you know, has, has kind of stayed pretty much the same. Um, after, after that, um, uh, I was, I, I decided that I wanted to work in politics and specifically in foreign affairs because I was fascinated by, um, after 9-11, I started reading primary source material f- uh, that uh, that was written sort of by Islamists for Islamists. And I had a feeling that the face that was, you know, the, the analysis, by the time it got to Americans, the analysis had crowded out the, you know, real facts of the matter. Um, I wanted to know what was convincing people to go and wage jihad. And the media and uh, think tanks and, and whoever they were like, oh no, it's uh, it's you know it's uh, it's um, it's American foreign policy or it's um, you know they need jobs or it's any number of things. And I had a feeling that was bullshit, but uh, I wanted to learn for myself, so I did, and um, and I got a job uh, at the only think tank in D.C. at the time that was trying to engage on these issues, which was the Center for Security Policy in, uh, in, in D.C. And I did that for, for some time and, uh, you know, met Andrew Breitbart um, right when the kind of, uh, you know, when, right when, when he was starting to make it big. And, and together we kind of workshopped this idea of doing a national security vertical, which ended up becoming big piece. Um, so Breitbart was an early mentor and we talked all the time, you know, at least, at least several times a week for, for a number of years, um, until, uh, until he passed away. And from him, I learned really, you know, I moved away from subject matter and I moved into a kind of communications, um, uh, kind of communications capacity. Um, fast forward to the time when we met, which was in Texas in 2014, um, or 2015, I think uh, late 2014, when I when I moved to uh, to Austin to work at Texas Public Policy Foundation and uh, and to run the comm side of um, of the Right on Crime project. So uh, that was that was up until like uh, 2015 or something, and uh, and you know I mean it was it was a great project and and it was it was really great it was uh, it was stimulating and TPPF at that time was full of kind of amazing, um, friends and, and, and a great environment. But I found myself at the time it was, they were discussing the Iran deal 
and I found myself a lot more uh, interested in what was going on on the foreign policy side, and it was calling back to me, and and I sort of went back to that, um, and uh, and then and then um, I guess uh, Trump won in in twenty sixteen. Um, I was I was in Dallas at that time, and then I moved back to DC because hey, it was it seemed like the Wild West in in Washington. So uh, and and in fact, it was, and it was a kind of great time to to it was a great time because the 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 traditional hierarchy of who was important in town had kind of broken down. And new structures were being built, and 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 I was a part of that, and uh, and I did a lot of uh, neat things that I'm not going to talk about uh, with the administration, and uh, it's it was uh, it was very good. Um, we had started a, a um, some some friends and I started the uh, the security studies group, which pretty much continued our work, um, and we were probably the first organized group of folks talking about the realignment in the Middle East and, you know, what we call the new Middle East, uh, which is the, um, the Arab and Gulf alliance with the United States and Israel against um, Iran and Qatar and Turkey. And uh, there's absolutely nothing in our analysis that, uh, that hasn't held up much better over the years than mainstream you know, mainstream media and kind of what we call the smart set um, analysis of, of foreign policy. Has. So I'm particularly proud of that. And then I wanted to get out of DC. So I moved to Miami beach where I, um, you know, where my family had been vacationing, uh, I guess since I was about a year old. So I moved into that old neighborhood and, um, and I started a, uh, a consulting firm myself. So this is where we are. All right, fantastic. Uh, and I do want to talk about some of the Middle East stuff in a little bit because that's very interesting. But to get back to Hungary, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, the the question is why why are we supposed to hate them? Uh, I guess uh, why you know what is yeah. The, what I mean, are, I I I think it it happens on sort of we we see it as it's been meta, as it's been. Um, uh, manifested on a kind of visceral level, we see we see anger and and hatred coming from um, coming from people like Ann Applebaum and coming from the the sort of uh, a, a very EU centric uh, group of folks who, not coincidentally, were the big um, uh, were the big uh, RussiaGate people. You know, they were the, the the people always you know screaming that you know Trump is a uh, uh, Trump is a, uh, a you know an authoritarian, Putin-loving, um, uh, international norms-destroying fascist. You know the same people who are liable to say that um, are also kind of hair-trigger alert when it comes to uh, when it comes to Hungary. And you see very quickly when you look at this rhetoric that it's not measured; it's really visceral. And there's something that. There's something kind of underneath that. You kind of scratch the surface. and I mean, this isn't an intellectual debate for these people. These people really think that they're looking at, you know, the face of Hitler um, when, they, uh, when they encounter people like Orban and Nigel Farage and, 
you know, frankly, Bibi Netanyahu and MBS and, and Yair Bolsonaro, um, you know, and on and on. Um, interestingly enough, these people, um, these people get more angry at, uh, at, at this group than they do at Putin, which, which is kind of a funny thing. I mean, Putin may be the source of all evil, but they don't, they don't loathe him in a way that they loathe these, these, this other, uh, you know, we can say the nationalist group. And I think that's because at the end of the day, and this is finally responding to your question. So, so thanks for bearing (laughs) with me here. I think at the end of the day, what these countries do is these countries repudiate what the left had kind of, you know, in a very Hegelian way assumed to be um, uh, the, the, the narrative of, of history. Um, they think that they come from a place where history and, and, and the mode of government will veer ever more leftward. Um, there will there will be an abandonment of traditional morality, of religion, um, of uh, patriarchy, of of all of these things that sort of the left now sees as very bad things to to destroy and to uh, and to to you know wrench out of a of a particular civilization. These things are kind of reasserting themselves uh, in in some of these countries. Hungary being a prime example. And uh, and these people don't really know what to do because they're faced with the failure or the apparent failure of their ideology, and um, you know. So so in that respect, I think it's personal. It's it's personal to them. It's personal to uh, you know to to what's going on. I mean, uh, uh, I don't think a lot of their criticism really stands up to uh, you know really really has has very much merit at all when when it's when it's all said and done. I mean, for example, um you have you know, for for example, you've got um criticism of their their policy when it comes to um when it comes to NATO. You know, they they'll say uh you know, there's as a criticism of Hungary and as a as as a criticism of Trump and 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 many of these leaders, they'll say, oh, you know, um, uh, Trump or Orban un- are undermining NATO. Why? Because they're friendly. You know, because because Orban is a little friendly with the uh, with the Russians. Well, the truth of the matter is, the Germans are far more dependent on the Russians for energy, etc., than 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 the Hungarians. And um, and nobody says anything, you know. So Western Europe has has kind of perfected over over the decades has perfected this this uh, amazing ability to uh, to very cynically um, couch their material and strategic interests in this very lofty rhetoric that's just not tied to to reality. And they're so good at this. They're 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 absolute masters. And everyone else is cynical. Everyone else is evil. But uh, but but they are wonderful. I mean, I, I'm thinking of of uh, the first time it it the first time I saw this. And you know, I mean, we're not that old. The first time I saw this was was during the the Gulf War when uh, Chirac was very very much against um, uh, Bush's involvement in um, uh, in in Iraq and the second in the, in the second Iraq War. And the question was why? Well, you know, he only talked about 
international consensus and, 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 and peace and things like that. But at the end of the day, he had made deal, you know, he personally had made deals with Saddam Hussein and, and, and France was, um, was standing to lose money with the toppling of, uh, of Saddam Hussein, you know, the same, the same thing could be said with the, um, with the, the Libya adventure, um, as well, but kind of from the opposite side. So they're, they're very cynical. Um, and, um, I know this was, was kind of rambling, but, you know, jump in wherever, wherever you want to, uh, to, to focus yeah. it a little more. Uh, you know, it is interesting to me just, uh, so with regard to Trump, uh, obviously, a lot of people uh, do not like Trump, and there's a big question of, you know, what is the fundamental nature of the objection? Objection is it a policy? You know, is it about the policies? Is it about, you know, uh, different views on trade or immigration or foreign policy, uh, particularly, or is it about, you know, objections to Trump's style? you know, uh, the vulgarity or, or, uh, uh, I, I don't, I don't need to go into too much detail. I think people are familiar with Trump, the man. Um, and it is interesting to me that if you look at someone like Victor Orban, uh, in terms of, you know, he, he doesn't have any of those things and they right. come after him still. Yeah, right, I, yeah. Look, look, I I don't know. I'm I maybe I've got a kind of different opinion on this. Maybe a little spicier take here on <laughs> on 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 some of the um the things that supposedly people don't like. Um, it's my contention that as far as Trump goes, the Twitter persona, the um, the you know the I don't give a damn kind of um you know sort of all the things that David French hates about Trump are the things that are essential about Trump because part of Trump is getting rid of David French. <laughs> right, right. Uh, so, so I mean, like, you know, so, so for example, if, if we, if we just had the policies and you didn't have the, let's say the, the, the element of, um, you know, the repellent, you know, the, the, the establishment repellent, is is what is what his you know Twitter feed is his Twitter persona is, so you know you'd have Rick Wilson in there you'd have um, uh, you know Steve Schmidt the usual gang of jackals, and it would um, y- you know and 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 then you'd have to have that fight, you know from from sort of within the tent at least now you do something you know at least now this this establishment repellent uh, keeps these guys at bay. I mean there there are other fights that. That you know you have to have uh, subsequent to that, of course, um, as there are in in kind of any political coalition. But I think that one is really key. And if and if I'm looking at sort of what comes next for America and what comes next for the right, it will only be um, it will only be a a candidate or a movement that is repellent in kind of the same way, if that makes sense. Hmm. Because well, it what, needs because it needs to be. Well, what so uh, Orban, for example, one you know, kind of like tidbit or factoid that uh, really strikes me, uh, you know, on a deep personal level, is apparently all of his staff one day a week are supposed to take a day off to just read and contemplate and you know uh, 
other stuff like that, which is a I, I would say is a different approach, uh, certainly than than most governments, but it's, it's, not, it's not the Trump approach either. So what I mean, he's obviously been very successful there, uh, fighting you know uh, in opposition to you know the same broad sorts of groups and forces, uh, but with a very different personal style and approach. Uh, even though there's obviously some policy similarities in terms of like the populism or whatever. So, I mean, what, like, what do you see as the, the like fundamental similarities and you know, how, how has he made, uh, been able to, to, to make that work in, in Hungary in a very different environment? So the fundamental similarity, I think at the end of the day is patriotism, um, and is a, a traditional understanding of sovereignty. Um, meaning you get to control your territory and, and your nation. Um, that idea of sovereignty somehow over the last, um, you know, of, over the last, let's say, 20, 20, 25 years, 30 years, has become controversial within the sort of um, the foreign policy smart set world. Only within the last seven or eight years has it become controversial within the kind of uh, broader political conversation in, in, in the U.S. and in the West. Um, but this is an understanding that goes back to, to you know, really to the beginning of, of, uh, of nations, um, you know, pr- a, a kind of pre-Thucydidean understanding. Um, and, uh, and in addition to that, you have, I think, both these leaders and, and and of course, the other leaders that sort of fit into this um, this particular uh, category, like we say, you know, Hungary, Brazil, Poland, um, Israel, Saudi, uh, UAE. Um, these folks think about the survival of their country, and you know, as very closely tied to the survival of its citizens and and its values. You know, we're not a you know, I mean, in many ways, the the kind of European project is is nakedly materialistic. Folks are interchangeable. You know, people. You know, you you br- you bring in. You know, you bring in five million um, uh, uh, Turks into Germany, um, or you bring in a million um, you know Libyans into Hungary, and you know, does that change the fundamental character of the place? Um, you know, of course it does. If you admit that it does, you can only celebrate that um, that change. You can say, hey, look, you know, they've got a, a bunch of new uh, kebab places. They've got great new food. The, you know, the wonderful pa- tapestry of, uh, of, of diversity is getting ever more, you know, bright and, and, and shiny and wonderful. But there are downsides. And, um, and you're, you're starting to see kind of the traditional understanding of, no, this is, you know, we are a nation with, uh, you know, with a people, we're citizens uh, living within a territory. And, and uh, you know, the, the, the highest aspiration of, you know, of, of a people or a nation is, is you know, is, is to survive, you know, is to survive in the, in the coming um, uh, uh, generations. And they're, so that's why you see Hungary, especially. I mean, Hungary is very vulnerable too, um, to assimilation, to uh, to uh, large scale immigration, and all these things. Because, you know, I, I speak Hungarian. That is not 
the most useful language if you're going to speak a second language. There are not many Hungarians in the world at all. They're mostly in Hungary and they're, you know, scattered expats, you know, here and, and there. I should it's, say. A, it's a very difficult, if you're just starting, it's a very difficult language to, uh, to, to kind of come to terms with and to, and to master. Um, as someone be- who, yeah, as someone who has looked into the possibility of learning Hungarian for reasons I will let people speculate about, uh, yeah, it's, it's tough. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Look, it's 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 tough. You know, th- does the food make it worth it? Yeah, I think the food makes it worth it. But but then again, you know, thank thankfully for my grandmother, I won't have to go through that. Um, I you know, I, I could certainly stand to read better and to and to uh, and and to uh, to you know improve my Hungarian literacy. But I can carry on a conversation and you know and and read just fine, which is good. But you know, all that is to say that. It's a small country with a small population, and it, which means it's it's constantly endangered of disappearing. And um, so the Hungarians are very cognizant of this. Orban is, you know, specifically, and and unlike many places in the West, which um, which you know, as I said, have have uh, have over the last couple of decades embraced this really materialist idea that uh, people are kind of without culture uh, and interchangeable. Um, the Hungarians know better and they see, you know, they, they see the threat all around them. So what they're doing is they're trying to have, um, they're trying to enact policies that will encourage having larger families and, uh, and, and things like that. And, and that's something that, uh, that's something that pisses, pisses off Western Europe because um, it, it, goes again not only does it piss off western europe it pisses off a kind of um uh a neoconservative establishment point of view that kind of fundamentally agrees with the the you know the eu perspective on the left in the sense that uh borders don't matter um open immigration is what is desired and really the only thing that matters is, you know, we're, we're raising the GDP. You know, it doesn't matter if we're shipping all our jobs to China. It doesn't matter if, if we're hollowing out, um, our manufacturing base. It doesn't matter if, you know, how, you know, it, it doesn't matter if, uh, if the kind of, um, the kind of traditional heritage Americans or Hungarians or, or whomever kind of die off. They can just be replaced by anonymous immigrants from, you know, wherever you decide to, uh, to, to pull them from. Um, and, uh, so, so there's, I mean, that's the big conflict and, and I'm not sure, I'm not sure that this sort of conflict has a name. It can be described ver you know, it could be des- described as, you know, as kind of, I'm, I'm trying to do here, you know, over the last couple of minutes, but I don't think this particular conflict has a name. You can say it's nationalism versus globalism. That's a really kind of popular shorthand that is okay to a, to an extent, but I think doesn't capture, um, doesn't capture all the, the, the facets of this. And really it's a, it's a kind of a, a transpartisan, um, uh, a transpartisan situation because right now, for example, critics on the you know the the let's say the center left and the center right are united in going after 
you know, in using the same talking points to go after Hungary or Trump or Bolsonaro, et cetera, all these, you know, all these, uh, all these folks. So um, maybe what I should do in the future is to come up with a nice shorthand way of, of, of pulling all these, these strands together. So I could just do this and, you know, <laughs> so I could just answer this question in like a, like a, um, a 90 second speech, but um, I have not done so, so far. All right. Uh, Doug, do you uh, have anything you want to get in on here or should I move to the Middle East? Uh, let's move to the Middle East. Um, <laughs> I, I, I don't know anything about Hungary other than I took a class on the Ottoman, uh, the Ottoman Empire taught by a Hungarian professor. Um, and I will add that I'm a big fan of David French. But yeah, let's talk about the Middle East. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh Yes, we in this podcast we have uh, you know we're we're a, we're a big tent we're a big tent uh, uh, okay so but let's yeah so let's talk about the Middle East because there have been some very uh, interesting developments over the past couple months where you have had now uh, I get like peace agreements uh, I guess it would be fair to say between Israel and three. Uh, Muslim states, uh, Bahrain, uh, 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 United Arab Emirates, uh, Sudan, and um, is it uh, Bahrain? Bahrain, Bahrain, Bahrain. Yeah. Um, and uh, also, I guess some sort of uh, negotiations with Lebanon over border disputes that they insist is not a peace deal, but that's going on too. Anyway, so this is this is big. I think these are, these represent the first peace agreement between Israel and a Muslim or Arab state since, I guess, Egypt back in the nineteen seventies. Uh, what what's going on there? How did that happen, and what does it mean? Sure. So it is a it is a tremendously big deal but it is a thing that has been building for some time um I, which is to say like i definitely want to give the trump administration administration credit for this because it could not have been done without them but on the other hand it could also not have been done with uh, without the terrible um position that the obama folks left the region in so um so at the end of the day, I guess going back to let's 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 slam both parties equally here. So the idea of if we're let's rewind to the uh, to the the kind of second Bush administration, where the idea of the um, the idea of the conflict that we have in the Middle East, let's say the war on terror, uh, the the prevailing opinion under that administration was that it was a problem of lack of political participation it was a problem of lack of freedom that was or that was that created the conditions lack of political freedom created the conditions in these countries for terrorism and extremism and opening up fair elections um you know uh letting letting um you know multiple parties vote uh etc cetera, etc cetera, would then sort of drain the swamp and they use these terms, uh, drain the swamp of, um, of radicalism and, and sort of help us in the fight against 
um, against Al Qaeda and 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 some of these other groups. So that was the opinion. That opinion was then replaced by the the incoming Obama administration, which said yes to all of those things. Uh, but we're also going to finally strike a deal with Iran because in order to pull out of the Middle East like they wanted to do, you have to kind of leave it in, you know, what they believed, you had to kind of leave it in a, um, in a, uh, in a, in a, a state of equilibrium, which means that you had to take balance, uh, the, the Sunni Arabs on one hand, uh, primarily in the Gulf and, and Iran, um, which kind of called the shots for the Iraqi government uh, as well. So the Obama administration set about trying to privilege Iran. They wanted to, you know, they looked the other way while Iran's um, uh, death squads and 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 militias rampaged through um, Iraq. Um, they did the same in um, in Syria. And um, you know, and and you know, frankly, we 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 saw how they 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 did the same. They looked other the other way in uh, in South America and in Africa as well. They wanted to do this because because for the Obama folks, the biggest tragedy that needed to be avoided was to what was um, another scenario where the U.S. would fight another another war in the Middle East. So that's what Obama wanted to. Uh, wanted to stop. And the way he thought he could stop this was by empowering Iran. And to, and the, the kind of the ultimate equalizer was, was having Iran have the nuclear weapon such that between Iran and Israel, you had, you know, some kind of parity and, and that will be the equilibrium that will, um, that will enable us to sort of quietly walk away. That's the best case. I think that's the most the most charitable reading of things. That you know, I mean, of course, you can you can find people who who claim all sorts of uh, of, of of theories. But I mean, it, to my mind, that's that's how it went. So, what did this naturally do? A byproduct of this, and a byproduct of the the Iran nuclear deal that the Obama administration sought, was to push the Israelis together with the um, uh, with the Sunni Arabs. At the same time, you had the United States supporting um, the Arab Spring, which was, you could say, a um, a an Al Jazeera slash Qatari promoted, uh, rev- you know, grassroots revolution under meant to undermine its um, uh, its its competitor monarchies in the region. So. Saudi Arabia, UAE, Egypt, Libya, Tunisia, uh, Jordan, Syria, all of these countries were uh, Lebanon. Uh, Lebanon, maybe not so much, but the rest of these countries were all targets of, um, of Qatari information warfare when it came to, you know, let's, when it came to um, uh, the possibility of toppling these governments by Islamists. Yeah, that's what they me, that's what they set up to do. Yeah, l- uh, let me just ask you here because yeah. I know that this has been a big theme in a lot of your writing is the uh, I don't know if rivalry is the the right word, but like clearly there's a lot of blood bad blood between the Qataris and the Saudis, and I'm just like 
what's what's up with that? Because when I think of, uh, you know, cutter or however it's pronounced, um, it doesn't seem by like it doesn't occur to me that it's like a, a major power player. I know they're big in media and uh, Al Jazeera's there, I guess, uh, but like, w- what is what is the basis of that of that? So the basis of that the basis of that dispute is, and, and frankly, when when people say you know all oh, the Wahhabis in um, in Saudi Arabia, well, the the Qatari regime is in fact also Wahhabi, um, right? So and it, and it, and it comes from the from the same thing. So you would th- so you would think that um, that you know they would be they would be fast friends, but 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 it, but it's not so. I mean, the Qataris were uh, let's say country bumpkins. Um, for a long time, they have always used, they have always depended on kind of, um, uh, twin pillars to create legitimacy and to survive as a very small country. And this is very common throughout, you know, world history. And and still to this day, you have a small country and then you go and you find yourself a a big power sponsor. So for, for a lot of Qatar's history, let's say the territory of Qatar, as opposed to the, the 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 real you know emirate the the state which only kind of pops up in in uh, in in the twentieth century um, but they made a deal for political um, you know for for religious legi- legitimacy with the Wahhabis and then at the time is they made a deal for political and dip- and uh, and military legitimacy with the with the British so it was a British territory uh, they they built a port there and they allowed the Brits to uh, to project power throughout the um, throughout the Gulf. Later on, they ended up trading both of those um, the both of those those kind of key sponsors. Um, the Wahhabis, the Wahhabi influence, they traded in for the Muslim Brotherhood, and the British they traded in for the United States. But it's basically the same relationship, and uh, and. You know, you've got to think of the, the Qatar, Qatar Doha, the capital, before um, 1930 was a small town. I mean, these are real bumpkins we're talking about. Uh, it was a small town before they found oil. I think they found oil in, in 1933, 1932. Um, it, there was nobody there. All of a sudden, they have fabulous wealth, and they look to, they look to their, um, uh, you know, their, their neighbors. And they see Saudi Arabia. I mean, Saudi Arabia is the, the, the you know the birthplace of Islam. The, the, you, know, the, you have you have Mecca and Medina there. Um, you look to Egypt. Egypt is is the center of Arab civilization and and um, and you know the the, the seat of learning uh, in in Islam. You have Baghdad, which which was also the seat of learning in Islam uh, in, in in Sunni Islam. Um, but in 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 Qatar, what do you have? You know, you have some oil. Okay, great. So, at a certain point um, in the um, in in the fifties and the uh, and the early sixties, when Nasser kicked out the Brotherhood from Egypt, he you know he he killed or imprisoned the the top echelon, and then sort of the 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 folks, the mid level and uh, and lower folks, were faced with this idea. I mean, they had to leave or else they would get killed. So many of them came to the United States. Many of them came to Europe. The third major destination was Saudi Arabia and Qatar. And at that point, 
the Saudis already had a religious um, infrastructure that these guys, um, you know, that, that that these guys were were coming into. So in Saudi Arabia, the the Brotherhood guys set up um, what we would think of as NGOs. Um, you know, the Muslim World League, things like that, and um, and and the Saudis put them to work in kind of NGOs, not expressly you know religious, um, Islamist, but but not expressly religious. In Qatar, though, they had nothing, and and the Emir of Qatar at that point said, "I need to build. I need to make this place legitimate. I need to build a totally legit center of Islamic learning. I'm going to build universities. I'm going to build madrasas. I'm going to, uh, you know, I'm I'm going to make Qatar a, a kind of real place that's not, you know, in the middle of nowhere." So they found a guy who was Yusuf Al Karadawi, who had um, who had uh, who was you know, a top brotherhood intellectual. And, um, and they sent him to, uh, to grad school at Al-Azhar and they, they, then they brought him back to Qatar and they basically gave him the run of the place. They said, Hey, you build the, uh, the Islamic infrastructure of Qatar. Um, and when, you know, from a kind of, uh, Islamic pedagogical perspective, and, and when you do this, you, it's like, it's like giving, it's like going to a union organizer and saying to them, you know, here is an unlimited amount of money. You, you know, you build, um, you know, union organization shops. I mean, this is literally what the Muslim Brotherhood is, is, is founded to do, is to build this type of infrastructure. So Karadawi, who still lives in, in Qatar and is very close to the, uh, to the ruling family, they, they show up every month in public um, in order to um, in order to kind of make a show of, of kissing him on the cheek, uh, to make a show of the very strong link between the Ikhwan and the, uh, and the Qatari regime. Um, so that's sort of how they maintain their, their legitimacy. And around the time of the Arab Spring, all of this came to a head specifically with Saudi Arabia and also with, with Egypt, of course. Uh, because these guys, the the monarchy started to notice that the folks that they had been partnering with and allowing uh, to build their infrastructure for so many decades were actually you know plotting against them and and plotting for their downfall. So uh, that's in a in a nutshell the Saudi Qatari um, uh, dispute. Okay, so. I guess the big question that I have is, so we've seen uh, some of the, so far the peace deals between Israel and these Arab states have been more limited to some of the smaller uh, players, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. I don't, uh, I don't want to minimize, you know, the situation, but you know, uh, the, UA- uh, the UAE is not, but you know, certainly if we want, you know, you know, Bahrain, Oman, um, things like that, they're known as, as, uh, as smaller Emirates that, you know, end up doing what, you know, they're, they're not exactly free agents. They end up doing what, uh, what the, the, the their, their bigger brother or their, their bigger cousin, uh, Saudi Arabia wants. Right. So, yeah. So that's my question of what does this portend for the future with, regard to Saudi Arabia. Is it possible that uh, the Saudis could, that this could be like kind of a, a 
dipping the toes of the water for some sort of thing with the Saudis? Is it just more indicative yes. of a informal? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I think the uh, a, a normalization with Saudi Arabia is is coming. I thought, I mean, it, it, it's just a matter of figuring out the timeline. Um, I'll tell you, I noticed, and this is, you know, c- kind of very informal poll, but it's a thing that it's real. Um, I've been speaking for a number of years to folks who are um, uh, kind of at all levels of you know, in, in Saudi, you know, diplomatic business, uh, government, um, culture, et cetera. And the same for the Emirates. And it became very apparent, um, some time ago that there is a divide between over 40 and under 40. And it's kind of best captured by the fact that, you know, MBS is, 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 uh, kind of mid four, mid thirties. Um, and the older generation is, you know, seems to be more kind of um, what we under would understand as as kind of like you know European, um, EU sympathetic, you know, um, Western educated, um, you know, it, people who read the Economist, you know, um, that sort of that that kind of that kind of person under forty, and you start to get into the situation where they're wearing MAGA hats. Um, they definitely, and I'm not kidding you. I'm not kidding you. Literally. Um, you get to the situation. I mean, I have one friend who was at a major university, um, and, uh, and he comes from Saudi and he, um, you know, he wanted to join some kind of a, of a group, but the only Muslim group was the Muslim student association, which is a, which is kind of has its pedigree in the Muslim brotherhood. It was the first group that was set up by the brotherhood in the United States in the sixties. And he says, the hell with that. I don't want to join that. You know, Saudi guy. He's like, all right, I'm going to start my own club. So he started the Saudi, um, uh, student association, you know, and which is actually a big deal jumping through hoops and this and that, and putting together, you know, group of, you know, groups of students and, 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 a you know, kind of, you know, mini curriculum and all that stuff only because he didn't want to associate with the brotherhood. Um, and he wanted, uh, you know, he wanted a kind of non-Islamist student group that he could, that he could, uh, be a part of. And that's not an uncommon thing or it's not as uncommon as, as, as you would think. And it kind of speaks to the fact that, um, there is a revolution against Islamism in some of these places. These people, these folks are, um, embracing their own nation as opposed to embracing the Islamist idea of a kind of transnational ummah, um, which is also, you know, frankly, you know, rewinding a little, a repudiation of the Obama, um, the Obama and the Bush assumption that these kinds of, you know, that they thought that this conflict would be solved on a civilizational level. And they said, okay, well, you know, Obama's going to go to uh, his, you know, he's he's going to go to Cairo in in, 20, in 2009, and he's going to do his apology tour, and he's going to make sure to have Brotherhood in the audience with him at uh, at, at uh, Cairo University, and he's going to say, okay, now we need to kind of make a, you know, start on on a new footing with with the Muslim world, and that ended up being exactly the opposite way to do things. 
because you can't make agreements with a religion. You know, you can't make an agreement with a civilization. It's just, it's just silly. You get nothing beyond platitudes. Um, number one, uh, at best, and at worst, you ended up, you end up going and empowering your interlocutors uh, to be, frankly, Islamists. You know, if you're making an, an uh, you know, you're making um, uh, a, a an interfaith peace deal. What do you do? You seek out faith leaders. And very often your faith leaders are, you know, are Islamists when you're, when you're talking with, uh, you know, about, about this particular region. So, um, so, so there was a birth, a kind of new birth of nationalism in a lot of these countries. You have Saudis, you know, the under 40 Saudis are very pro-nationalist. They are very pro-MBS. They, 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 um, uh, in, in, um, in the Emirates, you have MBZ and a lot of very strong, uh, Emirati patriots. Um, and, and they love the United States. It's not, you know, nationalism is not, you know, synonymous with, uh, chauvinism and it's not incompatible with, uh, you know, support for other regimes or, you know, countries or, 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 or ways of life. Um, so I think the Trump administration kind of wisely saw that, and they said, "You know what? We're gonna we're going to uh, we're gonna exploit it by dealing with countries, you know, by dealing with people we can make deals with, right?" So this may be a part of the kind of um, Trump Kushner naivete uh, that en- ended up serving them very well when it came to uh, when it came to the Middle East. As they came and they looked at it and they said, "Okay, who can make a deal?" And you don't make a deal, you know, when when you're in business you very quickly find out who you can make a deal with and you know, who is, who is, who is capable of, of, uh, of, you know, who, who is capable of, of, uh, of, of securing this deal is not necessarily the person who, um, you know, it, it's the person who's the stakeholder. It's the person who can, who can actually, you know, sign their name on the paper and, and make something happen. Yeah. The one um, who can, has the authority to say yes. Yes, yes, of course. You know, so so that that's that's the um, that's the other sort of um, uh, ingredient, really important ingredient, which is which is um, which is to push nationalism. And 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 I kind of, you know, I mean, I spent a lot of time in what people would call the counter jihad space, and within this space are a lot of, you know, frankly, there are a lot of good people um, who were so uh, concerned with uh, Islamism that maybe they got a little carried away and they made some kind of logical mistakes about um, about this, the situation that uh, that we're in that led them to generalize about Muslims or generalize about Islam or generalize about about these things. So like you know there was a kernel or more than a kernel of truth to a lot of these arguments you know, specifically about doctrinal Islam and Sharia and things like that. Um, but what the counter jihad failed to account for is this, you know, is, is that one day a bunch of, uh, Muslims in, in, you know, in the Persian, in the, uh, in, in the Gulf would wake up and say, you know what the hell with this, um, you know, religion means not that much more to me in practice 
than it would to, you know, your typical kind of, you know, plain vanilla, slightly a-religious American. Um, so, uh, so with the rise of nationalism comes the decline of, uh, of fundamentalism. And, you know, and, and I noticed that a few years ago, and which is kind of why I started talking about this a lot, because nobody was filling the space. Um, nobody was, was talking about the changes that were coming. And, and I, I got into big arguments with, you know, many of my, my, my former colleagues, um, I was on NPR where they, they laughed and yelled and tut tutted me for, uh, for, you know, for saying some of these things and, you know, but at the end of the day, uh, I was right. Um, I was right because I saw the, you know, I, I, I saw this happening. Um, and, um, and I think it's only going in a, in a, in a positive direction. Um, you do have fits and starts. Um, you do have, uh, situations like we, I mean, situations like we have in, um, in France right now, or, um, you know, with, um, I guess, you know, to, to kind of sum things up, um, you have, uh, a, a Muslim guy who, uh, killed and, and, and beheaded a teacher, a school teacher who showed the Mohammed cartoons, the kind of, uh, uh, infamous, um, I think they're, they're some of the same, uh, cartoons that, that, you know, came from, from Charlie Hebdo. Um, and, uh, sort of it, the, the response by Macron in France was to reaffirm, you know, was, was to go after the perpetrators and they arrested a bunch of kind of ISIS types. Um, and then also to reaffirm the values of free expression on which the uh, the you know the, the French Republic is 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 kind of uh, is kind of based, and frankly, Enlightenment values on which the West, broadly speaking, is is founded. Uh, and of course, so now you have this kind of set up uh, situation where I think the former president of uh, Malaysia has come out and, and some other agitators, specifically in Turkey, Erdogan has come out um, to uh, sort of in, in all but name call for a jihad against, uh, against uh, France and Macron and, and come down really hard on the West for allowing blasphemy of, uh, of Islam and, and his prophet Muhammad. Um, I think this is a, cynic, a very cynical ploy by the folks who are trying to undermine the uh the recent peace deals and um and to undermine the um uh the direction that the middle east is going in today and and i'm really hoping that that the um that the Saudis and the Emiratis and the Egyptians and and, and some of the uh, these other countries will just will just keep their powder dry and um and sort of not get involved. And this is, of course, this is being led. Who, I mean, who, who's leading it? It's Al Jazeera, it, um, if, which is the Qataris, and and it's Erdogan, which is the Turks. Which is, you know, you can say that um, that uh, AKP and and Erdogan come from a from a um, you know slightly altered variety of brotherhood. Um, so, 
you know, so it's it's not surprising that these guys are trying to uh, poison the well of um, of, of normalization um, and to try to ignite and inflame the old Arab street and to get the citizens of Saudi, Egypt, UAE up in arms enough for the government to take a stand against um, take a stand against France. So um, it is in the interest of the brotherhood types to make this a civilizational conflict. So it's in, it's in the interest of um, Erdogan to, to do the same. Um, it's in the interest of everybody else to you know either stay out of it or to to kind of affirm the uh affirm that you do have no blasphemy laws in france um so so i guess that's where we are i'm i'm you know i'm praying that everybody does the right thing i i think that the especially the um the, the saudis egyptians and the emiratis are smart enough not to take this bait um, but you know, I mean, we'll see in the next couple of days, they're trying to repeat the Danish cartoon, uh, nonsense from, from 2005, which, um, which featured, uh, featured brotherhood activists who managed to rope in the heads of regimes. They managed to rope in the organization of Islamic uh, cooperation and the Arab league and all these things when they were all sort of swimming along the same path. Um, but now the situation is much different. So, um, I mean, I think I think this will peter out, and you know, uh, months from now we won't be looking back and and saying, oh, you know, it's 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 now you know the fourth month of uh, of the cartoon riots of twenty twenty or twenty twenty one. Doug, do you have anything you want to get in here? Um. Not really, and I don't mean that uh, in a disrespectful way. I mean, in the sense of we're an hour into it, and yeah, there's a lot. Um, there's a lot. It's like yeah. I'm sorry. I'm just. I'm <laughs> yeah, just yapping. Yeah. I'm just talking. No. Yeah, yeah. No, no. And and what we're going to edit out all this crosstalk. But I guess my point is, we're an hour into it, and in some sense, we've kind of just laid the groundwork, right? I mean, I because well, let me ask. Let me ask, let me ask you this. Let me just tee this up and see if there's a question here. Is I know when I asked Josiah what we're going to talk about, and I think I think Josiah, you said foreign policy. Yeah. Would it would it make sense to wrap things up by asking the foreign policy question of okay, so you know, particularly in the case of Erdogan and Macron, what's what's the U.S. policy issue there? What's the U.S. policy? What should be the proper direction or? or or is there some other question that you want us to pivot to? Because we probably at at this point need to wrap wrap things up. No, I think that's a good question. Okay. Well, let um, me let me yeah. let me collect my thought and then and then pose it as a question, and then we'll sure. cut to that point. So you, you've talked about the the situation with Erdogan and Macron. Uh, let's bring it back to U.S. foreign policy, particularly since we're talking about nationalism. What's What's in our national interest? What do we, uh, what national interest do we have in the situation with, uh, you know, with the situation with Macron and France? So that's a good question, um, and and I guess it, it, it can answer in, in in a couple parts. Uh, part one would be what would I do, and part two would be what maybe what's the national interest. Um, 
So what I, maybe the second part first. So the national interest that the U.S. has in this, uh, in this particular situation, frankly, I would say is to underline our, our enlightenment values and, and the, the, uh, the values of free expression. I think if the United States doesn't do it, um, very few people will, will do it. We need to stand by France here um, in this uh, in this particular uh, situation. It's difficult for us uh, to have this chat too uh, in the United States and kind of to be forthright against uh, blasphemy laws because, frankly, the left loves their blasphemy laws. Um, they have it. They're, you know, at this point, they're they're pro censorship. It's it's an anti enlightenment um, uh, point of view that an anti enlightenment place that that the left is in now. It's kind of worked itself into a into a um, a totalitarian corner um, when it comes to this and and when it comes to sort of what it regards as uh, harmful speech. Um, so. The Trump administration can and should put their foot down when it comes to this and and articulate a clear policy on uh, on blasphemy laws and 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 on free speech and and I think that kind of clarification is going to is going to pay dividends on some of the other more domestic uh, free speech type of issues that uh, that that are, are going on here at this time. Um, so that's what they should do. Um, I'm of the opinion that NATO is not long for this world. Uh, it won't happen tomorrow. Probably won't happen, you know, within uh, you know four or five years. But I think within within the next decade, we're not going to be looking at NATO uh, anymore because it, it it is a it is a, a kind of contraption that was built for a previous era, and you're not going to you you cannot expel turkey from nato it doesn't make sense for turkey to be in nato under this um you know under this uh, particular uh, regime or frankly any projected regime in the future well there, um, there is a question of what is the purpose of nato now yeah uh, right. Well, we still—I do, mean, we still don't know. You—you you have, you know, we—we we have some of our friends that that have articulated, um, you know, some very nice perspective reasons for why NATO should exist. Um, you know, some, some great rationaliz- rationalizations. I think that's great, but that isn't—you know—that's not necessarily reality. I mean, that only works if you can get uh, NATO to agree that yes, this is our mission now. Um, but. Um, but uh, you know, I, I think at 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 some point we're heading into a um, we're heading into a place where Turkey can't be counted on um, in really in um, in any way uh, diplomatically or 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 militarily, uh, you know, for the United States. Um, so that's that's a tremendous problem with with NATO, um, and. Uh, and that really kind of ties into what the U.S. the U.S. interest is in you know in in the region and also in Europe and 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 elsewhere. Which is, I mean, at the end of the day, um, I always start my talks on the Middle East by saying, you know, what I am prescribing is what to do if you want to take a step back 
if you wanted, if you believe as I have come to believe, and as most Americans now believe, that the last twenty years of military involvement uh, in the Middle East was a tragic mistake, not because of the military involvement, you know, on its own, but because of, you know, because of uh, the way we've uh, we've mismanaged them and uh, and sort of not seen consequences that should have been apparent from, from day one. But if you want to unwind that, if you want to say, okay, guys, uh, we're not going to be, you know, we're not going to be the, um, you know, the policemen of the region anymore. It behooves us to leave as, as, um, you know, to leave our allies or people who will, um, people who will, um, you know, have, sort of take care of our interests in the region um, in as strong as possible. And that would be Israel and that would be the Saudis, that would be the Emiratis and that and and, and that would be um, that would be Egypt. We have a national interest in in keeping these regimes um, stable. We have a national interest in them, you know, frankly, um, you know, on their own, improving their lives through trade and technology, and um, and uh, and you know, uh, social modernization and and openness. I mean, all these things are um, all these things are are to the good because when that happens, then um, they don't fight with one another, and if they don't fight with one another, then we're all on the same page. Um, we need to get to a place where the um where our allies can really kind of um sheriff the middle east in a way that um they have not been able to thus far i mean israel can do it um but the question of whether it wants to do it in in you know a more expansive way is is uh um you know i i i don't think it wants to um you know even though it has the military capability to do to do so um, you know, so at a certain point, we've got to help the Arabs uh, militarily, in a sense, where you know, to get them up to speed and to be able to uh, to uh, combat or at least to uh, to stalemate uh, Iran, and you know, which which would uh, prevent them from adventurism in, in the region. So all of this is people people will, will ask. Why should I care? Why should I give a damn if they're making peace in the Middle East? What does it do for me, especially considering I don't want to be there in the first place? And I say, well, this is this is what it is. You know, you you the more the more peace that you have between your allies, um, the less in the end that you have to do, and the less that you will have to be worried about that particular region. So the person who uh, you know who is who is looking for less. Uh, involvement in you know in the Middle East is um, should be very happy with what's gone on there over the last uh, you know over the last year. All does that right. answer? Does that answer? I think that I think that is uh, a good answer uh, for today, and uh, you know we'll have to see how things play out, and maybe we'll have you back on to delve more deeply into some of these issues and see how it turns out. Because uh, there's a much, there's a lot more to cover. We didn't even talk about 
uh, Armenia and Azerbaijan and the war going on there or, uh, you know, Turkey's uh, stuff in Cyprus with Greece or, I mean, there's, there's a bunch of other stuff. So uh, we'll have to ha- have you back soon to talk about that. Sure. All right. Well, uh, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you very much. It's been uh, it's been great. I hope uh, I hope it made sense and uh, look forward to to doing it again.